and the language that we use is so important. So I think we need to be able to go back and forth. What I like doing is I like to explain what I think it is from a, a biomedical perspective. And then at some point say something like, now the Chinese 2,000 years ago thought about this in these terms. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological. Today, I have a panel discussion with three dyed-in-the-wool acupuncturists. These are successful practitioners who treat, teach, eat, breathe, and sleep Chinese medicine. I've invited them to this discussion as I wanted to have the perspective of acupuncturists who have studied dry needling as part of their inquiry into our medicine. One of the things about dry needling that is of particular interest to me is the way it's languaged and sold. Any savvy marketer will tell you that trying to cram a new story into someone's narrative is bound to fail. Our mental process has its own homeostatic set points, just like our physiology does. Push on it too hard, and it will rebound with a vengeance that you do not want to be in the way of. It's always way easier to connect with people where they already are. If you can tell a story that matches the story they tell themselves, then you have instant rapport. There's zero resistance as your thoughts echo theirs. Good marketing, it's not about manipulation. It's more like Aikido, the art of blending in a harmonious way. So with this in mind, I want to look at the language and the perspective of dry needling, and I think maybe we can learn something here. Now, if you just felt your gut tighten up and the thought arose that you need to delete Geological from your playlist, hang with me here. I am not advocating unskilled medical professionals practice the form of acupuncture called dry needling. And I think we have an opportunity to learn something here. I live in Missouri. Dry needling is not legal here, and it's practiced all the time. I increasingly hear patients tell me that they had it, and they had no idea that it's acupuncture. And what's more, they don't care. Beyond that, if I inform them that it's not legal and that it only requires a weekend of training, guess what? They usually end up defending the person that performed it on them, even if the procedure was not helpful for them. Let's face it. People want to like and trust their healthcare professional. That's part of how we have our livelihoods as well. And this raises the question for me of why it is that people are open to dry needling, even when it hurts like hell and even when it doesn't help. I suspect it comes down to language and culture. Here in the West, conventional medicine is the go-to. Chinese medicine is, well, worth a try if the regular thing doesn't help. And beyond that, there's the language. Speak a person's language and you're on the inside. You get each other. There's a feeling of safety and connection. Speak someone's language and trust naturally will arise. And while we as acupuncturists hate it when other medical professionals have relanguaged and rebranded what essentially is one aspect of one technique of our medicine, which is vast, at the same time, I think there is an absolute brilliance in how the dry needling community has skillfully used the language of the dominant culture to sell dry needling as something that's both medical and scientific. From a storytelling point of view, it's an excellent example of connecting with your audience, meeting them where they are both consciously and unconsciously, and getting a deep buy-in. 
I get it too. You know, if someone wants to tell me that they're going to go on a shamanic journey and remove invisible blockages in my spirit body, I'm basically looking for the exit. However, if I'm told that there are some restrictions in certain tissues and that some gentle touch, maybe some breathing, a little bit of acupuncture, a little bit of manipulation could open up the local metabolism, guess what? I'm all in. What's the difference? The difference is that I'm open to the second story. And I think it's like this with the people we serve. We as acupuncturists love the idea of chi, but our patients, they just want results. Ideally in a way that they can tell a story to themselves that makes sense. And let's face it, the top of the bell curve in the first standard deviation in America is way more receptive to something that sounds like they imagine conventional medicine to be. We may disagree with and feel anger at the way acupuncture has been relanguaged, but you got to admit, it was done brilliantly. And the question arises in my mind, how do we talk about our medicine in such a way that we stay connected to our roots and at the same time allow ourselves to be heard in modern Western culture? It's a troublesome question, and I suspect one worth chewing on. Now, I want to be clear that I am not supportive of unlicensed or poorly trained professionals doing acupuncture or whatever you want to call it. And I don't think that looking at the dry needling phenomena with an eye toward how we can learn something, something that will help us to help our patients, means that we support dry needling. And so today's conversation is about dry needling. And as I already said, these are dyed-in-the-wool experienced Chinese medicine practitioners. They are not fresh out of school. They're not looking for an angle. These are practitioners with an open mind, a deep sense of inquiry, and a love of Chinese medicine. Dry needling is an issue that puts many of us on the defensive, and for good reason. That being said, I would encourage you to keep an open mind as you listen to the experience of these three skilled acupuncturists. I got a couple real quick things here, and then we're going to dive into today's conversation. First, you know I'm a stickler for sound quality, and I'm sorry to say there were some sound problems in today's conversation with the audio stream of one of the guests. Usually I'd say, hey, let's get a new mic and do this on a different day, but trying to schedule four busy practitioners is not easy, so I apologize in advance for the less than optimal sound quality. All right, you know that later this summer is the second anniversary of Geological. It just turns out that the anniversary show is show number 100. How about that? Deep gratitude here to all the guests who have given their time and shared something of the medicine that they have. And thanks to you too, the listener, for making Geological part of your life. For the anniversary show, I'm going to have one of you joining me. We can talk about something you've learned or you do in your practice. You can turn the mic on me and host the show for a day. Hey, you know, for that matter, you can host the show and choose to speak with the guest of your choice. Hey, this could be a lot of fun. Anyway, to claim your space for the microphone at the anniversary show, just send me a postcard from where you listen to the podcast and put your email address on it. Might not be a bad idea to add your phone number too. I'm looking forward to putting these in a hat and choosing one of you for show number 100. All right, friends, that's enough jawboning here on my end. Let's get into today's conversation. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. 
Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect Pumsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit Mayway.com. This season and every season, trust Mayway Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. I love how technology can help to automate my office. And I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to jane.app/switch to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code geological at the time of sign up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast Needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of this solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash geological to learn how. I've got a special program here today. It's a panel discussion. 
I've got four gentlemen with me today who are dyed in the wool acupuncturists, and they also have some experience with dry needling. These are folks that have deep, deep background in orthopedic acupuncture. And we're here today to talk about orthopedic acupuncture. In particular, we're here to talk about dry needling. Now, I know it's really easy for us acupuncturists to have some knee-jerk reactions. We hear the words dry needling. We get pretty uptight about it. Obviously, there are scope of practice issues. We're not really here to talk about that today. What we're here to talk about, I think you've all had this experience in clinic. You've helped your patients. You've done really great work. They've gone back to whatever medical doctor they're seeing, and they say, I'm fine. And the medical doctor just goes, mm. You know, they don't even get curious about why this supposedly uncurable thing is now taken care of. And I, and I think that there's probably a lot that we can learn from this whole dry needling thing. And I got some guys here to talk about that. So rather than me jawbone on and on, let's just have you all introduce yourself. Fernando, why don't we start with you? First of all, thank you for putting this together. Uh, I think it's very important that our awareness within our profession continues to grow in this uh, very topic. I'm Fernando, Fernando Bernal. I practice in San Agustin, Florida, and I've been practicing since 1995. For the last few years, I have taken a strong interest in orthopedic type of work, and which eventually brought me to practice in dry needling, amongst other things, uh, injection therapy and so on. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Wonderful to have you. Brian. Hello, I'm Brian Lau, I'm also in Florida, so a fellow Floridian with Fernando. Uh, I'm in Tampa, Florida, though. I've been practicing since 2000, though. Initially, I started as a massage therapist and uh, studied and became certified in structural integration, which is the body of work that Rolfing is part of. So I did that for a number of years and then went back to school for Chinese medicine and acupuncture and did training in sports medicine acupuncture. I did that certification program, and I'm now on the faculty of the sports medicine acupuncture, teaching both in the certification uh, program, but also with the foundation classes. I've been teaching with them since 2014. So I teach very closely with Mac Allison. We work on developing and, and adding some, some aspects of curriculum within the sports medicine acupuncture certification, and that's an ongoing process, especially working very uh, heavily with the sinew channels. Sinew channels, those are interesting. I'm looking forward to hearing more about that. Dr. Lerna. All right. My name is Josh Lerner. I am an acupuncturist in the Seattle area. I've been in practice since 2001, really since about 2006 when I first started learning Twena, uh, the Jungu Twena system with Tom Bizio and Frank Butler. I've been really focusing more and more on orthopedic medicine. Uh, about that same time, I took a series of classes on manual trigger point therapy, got really interested in that, and then continued on with some more advanced classes in the dry needling techniques. Um, I went through Matt Callison's year-long sports medicine program with Brian and Matt as my teachers. I've done lots of other classes in orthopedic medicine with osteopaths, with physical therapists, and that really is the bulk of what my practice is now. And I also teach all of that type of material at the Seattle Institute of East Asian Medicine, where I've been teaching for about the last eight years. I'm so glad to have you guys here. You got an incredible background in orthopedic medicine, strong, strong Chinese medicine background, and you've got some understanding of this dry needling. Gentlemen, what do us acupuncturists have to learn from dry needling? Okay, let's start with Brian. So... I could possibly reframe frame the question and, and state what you have to learn from more anatomically based acupuncture. 
And I think dry needling has a lot to offer that because it's very anatomically specific and precise. There's a target tissue as we have target tissue in acupuncture, but the target tissue is the target tissue is, is muscle and connective tissue. And, and particularly when we're talking about dry needling, it's predominantly muscle or at least myofascia, muscle and, and connective tissue. And it teaches us to look at the body a different way and to understand pathology maybe a different way and, and to open up possibilities. There's a lot of information within the schooling of trigger points and trigger point theory that I think parallels, but also informs a lot of our practice on channel theory. Could you go into that a little bit more, how it parallels, but even more importantly, how it informs our channel theory? So let's consider something like the longus coli, a very deep anterior cervical muscle. The longus coli, when you start looking at pathology associated with it, this could be one that's associated with whiplash injuries and it can create pain, but it can also create things such as plumpitchy. You know, they would say globus hystericus uh, when you look at the trigger point manual because they're looking at it from a Western standpoint. So globus hystericus, difficulty swallowing sometimes, feeling that there's something stuck in the throat. That's one of the symptoms, one of the symptomology when there's dysfunction in the longus coli. So that's kind of interesting. And then you look at that tissue and you look at which plane of tissue it's associated with. I interpret that as being part of the sinews, the channel sinews of the kidney channel. Then you start looking at points along the kidney channel and you look at something like kidney six. Kidney six treats plumpity. So maybe one of the things that it treats is it regulates tension distally, regulates tension within the longest coli. Kidney six is also one of the points of the yin chow. And if you look at the yin chow, it, it goes right to stomach nine. It says something like anterior to stomach nine. So it goes right into a point that you could access the longest coli through. So it just gives information. It starts to um, inform some of the practice. Yeah, it sounds like it brings a real three-dimensionality. It's not just, oh, I'm going to stick a needle in this one tight spot, but it's a way of, of looking systemically at the whole thing. Yeah. But also maybe, you know, if you're palpating the longest coli, it tells you, hmm, maybe there's a pathology here that's associated with the kidney channel or maybe the yin chow. So it kind of, it just gives you a different way. It opens up possibilities, opens up possibilities to, to use distal points with adjacent and local points and just more information, you know, it gives us another resource. Great. Fernando, what are, what are your thoughts on this? I am in the process right now, and this is not a shameless plug, but I'm in the process of developing an online directory for practitioners who practice orthopedic acupuncture, including dry needling. And in the process of putting this uh, website together, this directory together, as I did my research on Google, if you were to search the word filiform, filiform needle, immediately Bing and Google equate filiform needle with dry needling. Immediately, and you can do the search right now because that's the name of the directory that I put together. It's called filiformneedle.com, and it's not ready to go publicly yet, but I'm, I'm still working on that. So to me, what we can learn is that while the acupuncture profession has been very busy trying to convince the acupuncture associations, acupuncture boards about the danger of practicing acupuncture without a license or without sufficient training, the other allied professionals have been busy promoting dry needling online. So every time that you do any research, any search on Google or Bing or any of the major search engines, you will find that they immediately are associating dry needling with physical therapy, with chiropractors, and so on, and acupuncturists are left behind. 
So what I find that we can learn from is that we have left our marketing aspect of, of this whole dilemma that we're in, in the back burner, while we've been busy trying to convince the boards and the licensing organizations of the dangers of using dry needle improperly. And I think we, we missed the boat there. We, we tried to win this battle in the legal arena, but we did not approach the public arena, the public perception. Even just today, I had a patient that came from Atlanta where they are practicing a lot of dry needling. And she says, have you heard of dry needling? And it's just a common occurrence where patients are bringing that up. It's not that we as acupuncturists are educating patients about dry needling. They're being educated by the PTs, by the chiropractors, by the other allied professionals. And I think what we can learn is that we're missing the boat in the marketing part of it. This point that you bring up about the use of language, the use of marketing, how they're getting the word out, so to speak, using the word filiform needling. By the way, y'all that are doing SEO on your websites, you might want to make sure that you say something about acupuncture is a filiform needle. That'll bring more people to your website, by the way. It's a really interesting thing, like you say, that by going out and using a, a certain kind of language, they've really captured a piece of the market that we well, up to this moment, haven't been paying attention to what we are now. We'll, we'll come back to more of that in just a moment. I'd like to hear from Josh, your thoughts about what the dry needling world has to teach us. Two things that I wanted to mention were basically just to reiterate what Fernando and, and Brian just said. So from speaking to Fernando's point, one of the things that we really have been missing the boat on is not just education, but fighting that battle in promoting ourselves instead of kind of promoting ourselves by fighting against the the PTs. Like we should just be that much better and that much more confident in what it is that we're doing and to be able to speak that language and to promote ourselves on that front instead of having our promotion be based on defensiveness. That can only really be accomplished. It can only really come about when we have a certain level of, of familiarity and confidence in our ability to actually kind of function on that level or function in that context of talking about, you know, talking to patients on an anatomical level, talking to patients on a, on a level where they can understand what we're saying and, and we're not just saying things that sound esoteric as far as our treatments or how we're diagnosing things. So that's one thing. Speaking to what Brian said, so just recently through a series of coincidences, I ended up teaching the first year channels and points class to the first year students at school up here in Seattle, which I've never taught the material before. So that forced me to go back and relearn all of that information from the first year of acupuncture school that I you know I didn't really like forget it, but it's stuff that wasn't in like the forefront of my brain for many, many years. And so looking back at the information on the channel system, I started to see a bunch of little things that I'd forgotten about or that I hadn't been paying attention to that to me seemed like explanations from 2000 years ago of phenomena that we would really consider trigger point phenomena um, and things that like don't otherwise really fit into the channel system in a kind of a rational or logical way, the way that the system is set up. For instance, the law channel of the small intestine channel. So the, the law channel basically goes up 
and spreads across the front of the shoulder around large intestine 15. So most of the law channels, they connect with the, with the internal-external paired channel, right? And they go to some other area of the body. But it says very specifically for the small intestine law that it goes up and spreads across large intestine 15, which is kind of a strange thing um, when you think about where we normally think about the pathologies of the small intestine channel on like a musculoskeletal level, right? It wraps around the scapula and it goes up the side of the neck. But if you study trigger points and you realize that the infraspinatus, which is covering the back of the scapula and small intestine 11 basically is right in the middle of the belly of the muscle. When that's problematic, when it develops trigger points, when you palpate it and you press on it, the most common thing that will happen with incredible reliability is that you get this pain that radiates out right to large intestine 15. It's so reproducible. I would say like, you know, if you know how to palpate, you could probably have that experience on probably 85% of the people just if you just walked up to random people and have that happen. So to me, studying, it's not so much the dry needling specifically, but trigger point theory in general helps to really flesh out and enrich the study of these ideas from Chinese medicine that otherwise just seem like arbitrary observations or just kind of arbitrary things that they discovered. But then the last thing that I, I would say is that what studying trigger point theory in general and dry needling in particular really brings to the study of Chinese medicine is a sense of precision, a different type of precision than we often experience as acupuncturists. We, we can be very precise with certain things but in terms of you know palpating muscles, like things that we talked about, uh, Michael, on the last podcast, we did our trigger point and dry needling, just you and me. That was one of the things that I brought up was that acupuncturists very often, unless they do a lot of orthopedic needling, don't really palpate individual muscles with knowledge and with precision. We're very precise palpating some other subtle things and palpating acupuncture points and subtle changes in tissue. And also with the needling, dry needling forces you to be incredibly precise, targeting very specific tissues and muscles. And it's just a different type of precision than we're, than most acupuncturists who don't do that type of work are used to, I think. Hello, everyone. Anne Cecil Sturman here. A working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well-integrated diagnostic, theoretical, and practical skill. You'll be familiar with Dumai, the governor channel or the sea of Yang, the primal reservoir of Yang, which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel clearing impedance in the free flow of yang chi to body, mind, and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at Anne Cecil Sturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. 
often as an acupuncturist, the idea is I'm going to find this point. Maybe it's sticky. Maybe there's heat. Maybe, I mean, there's all kinds of ways we find acupuncture points. At least in my practice and in the practices where I've observed other people, we haven't really gone into there's this specific muscle, there's this specific tendon, or there's this specific trigger point or whatever. There's an anatomical feature that I really want to pay attention to. I know what it is. I know what it's called. I know what it does. And I'm going to go do something with it right now. I think you're right. We don't have that kind of precision for the most part. Can I add something to it, Josh? Absolutely. So uh, talking about the uh, low of the small intestine, there's a similar thing that an anatomical perspective and, and trigger points also kind of offers in channel theory that is kind of parallel to Josh was saying, and that's the large intestine channel, which reaches, of course, large intestine 15, but then it intersects with SI12. And then when you look at the target tissue of what SI12 reaches, that's the supraspinatus. And we look at LI15, that is the attachment of the supraspinatus. So it starts to get a little focus to why there's an intersection point at SI12 for the large intestine channel. And getting back into the trigger point referral patterns, they would the supraspinatus would refer down to things like LI11. So a lot of the, the referral of, of the supraspinatus, which I see as primarily a small intestine sinew channel muscle, but it does link. It links very heavily with the large intestine channel and refers down the large intestine channel. So it starts to just bring some focus in the same way that Josh's explanation was bringing focus with infraspinatus and its referrals and, and how that can kind of make sense out of things that, that, like Josh said, is kind of arbitrary, possibly seeming. But when you start understanding the anatomy and referrals and connections that way, there's a little focus what I'm hearing you guys saying is there is a way of looking through the map, so to speak, of dry needling or trigger point, call it what we want. There's a map that shows the body in a certain way. We can overlay that on our Chinese medicine, see lots of different places where it connects and also informs. I had a conversation with somebody just the other day, and we were talking about the difference between maps and terrains and how different maps are useful. So, for example, if you're looking to find a house on a street with an address, you don't want to use a topographical map. It's not going to help you. You want to have a road map. But topographical maps have their use. And road maps have their use. And what I hear you guys saying is that there's this other map that can really inform a lot of the work that we do and a lot of the theory that we already have about Chinese medicine. Yeah, and the image of the map is really interesting. It's actually one that I've I've used in the past also because in one sense you could look at like a topographical map and a population density map and a road map and a voting pattern map and all these things seem to be giving you completely separate bits of information. But, you know, there's a lot of ways in which some of these maps even you can kind of predict some information about one map from one of the others. Like you could predict if it's like really a mountainous terrain, roughly where roads are likely to go by looking at a topographical map, right? You're not going to probably have straight roads going right over the places where the, like the peaks are really high in the mountains. You're not, you may not have like a high population density in an area, like certain areas by looking at a topographical map or looking at even a road map. So even though the information is like of a completely different order, from all these different maps, it's not like they're just describing completely separate realities. There's still ways of, of making 
crosslinks with the information, which I think is a really great way to think about the different maps we use thinking about medicine. Fernando, I'm I'm curious to know how you in your practice use this uh, the maps, so to speak, of the trigger points and the dry needling, and how that helps to inform your Chinese medicine, and also how you see it being specifically helpful to your patients. I think the the key for me is palpation. You know, I, I really like this whole map metaphor that we just went through because the map has not changed in the human body. It's the same map that we had 4,000, 5,000 years ago. It's the same human map. Uh, perhaps the physiology and yeah, uh, different adaptation through evolutionary processes might have been somewhat altered, but it's the same map. And uh, I think that in my work, is really about palpation. Even when I'm palpating for regular acupuncture points, I, I am not going like three soon uh, superior to a, a given landmark. I'm really just literally feeling with my fingers to see if I find a difference in texture and, and temperature and density of the tissue. So I like to palpate the map uh, constantly as, as I work with dry needling or just locating regular acupuncture points as we learned them in, in Chinese medicine school. Today, for example, with, with a patient who I mentioned that came from Atlanta, and I was working primarily on her uh, uh, infraspinatus muscle, and there were so many different regions. She was robbed. She was in in, uh, in Argentina and was robbed. The thief pushed her arm uh, immediately, tremendously, which definitely had an effect on, on her muscles on the scapula region. And as I palpated the area, yeah, I could identify the acupuncture points, but also the area that got traumatized as a result of the assault. So in my practice, palpation plays a big role. In dry needling, we have to locate a taut band, and then we need to find the actual trigger point itself, and then go after some type of resolution to that trigger point, whether it be by getting some type of a trigger, uh, some type of twitch response, or feeling the, the point becoming softer, or some change in the tissue as we needle. So in my practice, I really rely on palpation and always have. I came from a shiatsu background. That's, that was the first practice that I had in Chicago was shiatsu, where we palpated everything, including the abdomen, the hara, and so on. So today, even when working with with uh, acupuncture points, it's always through palpation. So in my work, palpation plays a big role. You put your hands on the map. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's almost like Braille. You know, you, you, you feel in, in what, what does it say as you palpate? I, I want to turn for a moment back to the languaging piece. Josh, you're out there on the left coast and Brian and Fernando, you're, I mean, you're on the East coast. So those areas are a little more hip, so to speak, than here in the Midwest. I know here in the Midwest, if I start talking to people about chi and channels and, you know, blah, blah, blah. I mean, there are some people that are into that kind of thing, but I'm going to lose most people. All right. So I try not to talk too much about it. One of the things that I've noticed, and Fernando, you brought this up earlier about the filiform needling and, and the languaging that, that goes around that. It seems one of the things 
that the dry needling community has done is they've done a brilliant job of taking some ideas, putting them into very Western anatomical biomedicine terms so that when they talk about what they do, they're speaking the language of most of America. And, you know, for us acupuncturists, if we start talking about invisible things and this invisible energy, again, there are some people that are going to cotton to that, but there's going to be a bunch who don't. So I'm, I'm curious to hear from you guys. And, and on this one, let's start with Brian. What do you think about how the languaging that's used by this other community of practitioners is something that could help inform us in the ways that we talk to people? Uh, well, I completely agree that you have to use the language that people resonate with. Outside of my professional life, I teach uh, Tai Chi and Qigong classes. And I, I don't I rarely say Qi uh, in those classes. I usually talk in very easy to understand language. Sometimes I talk a little bit about anatomy and structure and alignment and, and movement that happens between regions of the body, but it's all pretty down to earth language. And I think some of the concepts I talk about can be talked about in terms of the microcosmic orbit and the macrocosmic orbit and some of these more esoteric processes. I think what I'm explaining are those things, but I'm, I'm saying it in a way that people can understand and resonate and they don't feel sort of shut out of the conversation. Sometimes, sometimes the anatomy can be a little bit harder for them to understand, but they they can kind of see it. They can kind of understand it. And I think the same thing with acupuncture. I think we should use a language that people can resonate with and people can can follow and they don't feel like they're not part of the conversation, that they're just listening to someone who is beyond what they can understand. So I, I just think it's essential that you use language that's attainable for people to get. I'm curious to know when people say, that acupuncture, how does it work? How would you explain it to them? If I was really smart about this, I would have a good commercial, and I'm not one for having like a 30-second commercial, so I really make it up with each patient, which maybe isn't the smartest thing in the world, um, but regardless, I do that. So some of it's going to be based on what I'm working on with them, of course, and I sometimes have common themes that I discuss, how it, it's relaxing and working with reactive places in the muscle to either soften a muscle that's too tight or waking up a muscle that's, that's inhibited and not sort of playing along, so to speak. And then I use the, the, the information from the distal points and say that they're part of a, a chain of tissues that interact with each other and communicate with each other. And that stimulating distally will also help that muscle do something, wake up, turn off. And then if I wanted to get more in depth with that, then I might talk about how that can take pressure off of blood vessels and nerves and, and have really a profound effect on the functioning of the body. But I try to keep it pretty simple and pretty grounded within reason. You know, it's a complex subject, so it's kind of sometimes difficult to make it succinct and simple, but I try not to get too out there with it. I love what you said here, that you couch it in terms or you bring up examples of the things that you're working on with them. You're not doing this global, oh, here's how it is. You're taking something that they came in with. You're taking something that they're having an experience with, and you're explaining their experience to them through the ideas of Chinese medicine and through the ideas of, of physiology. I mean, how can you argue with physiology? Josh, what about you? How do you uh, approach this languaging thing? Um, really similar to what Brian was talking about. I'm definitely a big fan of not alienating my patients with the language that I use. But what's interesting, as the more I've thought about this, and, and you and I have talked about this also in the past a few different times, and talking with patients over the last few months with this kind of in the back of my head, I've realized that 
that using the language of Western medicine also has as much of a potential to be alienating to patients as the Chinese medicine does, depending on how you use it. Um, especially the more specialized knowledge that you get around, you know, physiology and, and around pathology. You know, it's a lot of patients come in and they've already been frustrated with talking with their doctor or their physical therapist because they're using all these terms that they don't understand. They don't know what the difference is between like a tendonitis versus a tendinosis. And I mean, those words also, even though at, at one level you could say that they're more familiar to most people, still for a lot of patients, it can be kind of confusing. I have to very often explain their Western medical diagnosis to them using simpler language. And so what I've kind of fallen into doing is speaking in some, it's like somewhere between, I guess you'd say the imagistic type of language that we use in Chinese medicine, right? Chinese medicine is one of the strengths of the language is its use of metaphor and its use of language that really reflects our moment to moment experience, right? We talk about things like damp and heat and cold, and we talk about the body using the same language that we use to describe the environment, more or less. That's one of the reasons that a lot of people gravitate to that language, but then they can start to get a little bit too abstract for some patients or kind of not make sense. And so using that idea of trying to explain, even if I'm, if I'm thinking about a particular patient in terms of uh, which groups of muscles are out of balance or what the, like if there's a particular problem in a joint, trying to think of a, of a metaphorical way that's not misleading and that's as accurate as I can make it um, from a physiological point of view, but that kind of gets the patient to really understand it. One of the ideas that I, I learned about how to do this came actually from a class that I was taking with a lot of physical therapists going back to things we can learn from people like physical therapists that was based on some research on motor learning, like how people actually learn new skills. And like when you're teaching someone a new physical skill, the importance of not just imposing your language on the patient, but listening to like how, what the patient, what language they're using to describe what they feel when they do a particular exercise and then using their language back at them for feedback. That was a fundamental shift in how I thought about language use with patients like especially coming from like a martial arts and a qigong background it's usually taught with there's certain sensations you're supposed to feel there's certain types of language we use we tell students so you should practice it this way so that you feel this in this part of your body um, but there's a lot of research that starts to show that that often you know because people have such different interpretations of individual words getting the patient to do it correctly and then asking them what did that feel like and then using their language back to them. So kind of at a level, even with talking about their diagnosis and how I'm going to be treating them, I have more of an approach like that now than previously when I tended to have my set of like stock phrases that I was used to using that, you know, worked 75 or 80% of the time. I've kind of shifted more towards even the language that I'm using being more kind of reactive to each individual patient, kind of like what Brian was just saying, right? Kind of crafting it in the moment. Right. Yeah. It sounds exactly what Brian was saying. I did a show, it was the anniversary show uh, with Nick Paul on the use of language and the kind of language it's called clean language or clean questions that he asked people. It has to do with what they're saying and it has to do with what their experience is. You use their language and you sort of feed it back to them because now they're hearing their experience. 
it, it's deeply connected, very rapport building. I realized as Josh was talking, we do that with the Tai Chi I teach with. We ask people, how does it feel? And we don't want them to know. We don't want them to say, oh, it feels good. You know, it's really, what do you feel? What's, what's the frame of reference that you can remember when this instruction and this correction occurred that allows you to find that and allows you to understand your body a little bit more. And I do that in practice quite a bit. After working with people, if something shifted, I want to hear how they, how do they, how does it feel to them? You know, what frame of reference do they have that they can recognize that quality and search and kind of seek for that quality to, to maintain their own health? Wow. Brian, you just changed my practice. I'm serious. I, I think you just changed my practice. I, as I just heard you say that, I was thinking to myself, so often I ask people, well, how does that feel now? And really what I might want to be asking is, what do you feel now? Wow. I can hardly wait to try this out. <laughs> Fernando, what about you? What are, your, what are your thoughts on the languaging? I echo what Josh and Brian uh, have said. Uh, it's really patient-specific. When a patient tells me that they brought me their MRIs or their X-rays, or they ask, should I bring you my blood work? I already know that they expect me to be able to speak that language. And therefore, I'm not going to go into talking about, you know, body fluids from a Chinese medicine perspective and, and Shen and Qi and so on. Because if they're saying, I want to bring you my MRIs, they expect me to be able to know something about it. So I think the language is, is really important. And I think that's what we're missing a part in, in our profession. Uh, as you, some of you may know, I, I teach uh, a neurology class for a, a dry needling program that has been put together by Chinese medicine that works. And we're doing a dry needle program to, for acupuncturists. And what I find amazing is that a lot of our colleagues are really missing this language they are not fully aware of, someone says, the brachial plexus. What does that mean? What does it mean when we say cervical plexus? What do we mean when we say uh, gray matter, white matter, or the dorsal horn, and so on? So a, a lot of us are really missing that language. And of course, patients are not supposed to know what the dorsal horn is. But sometimes you do have a nurse, you have a, a doctor, you have a, a physical therapist who may come to you. And the language that we use is so important. So I think we need to be able to go back and forth. What I like doing is, I like to explain what I think it is from a, a biomedical perspective. And then at some point say something like, now the Chinese 2,000 years ago thought about this in these terms. They thought about it like this, like that, like so and so. That was 2,000 years ago. They were saying the same thing, but using a different language. So you're building a bridge there. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. Because in reality, when we look at the literature that we're saying, a lot of the things that we're saying today, just a different language. Yeah. I mean, that's what, we're, that's what we were talking about earlier in the conversation. We've got these different maps. We're speaking the language of different maps. You know, I, I suspect it's our job as practitioners to have some fluency and ability to shift between those. Well, I want to get into a question that might bring some hate mail. One of the issues with dry needling that acupuncturists are, are very keen on, and you know, I think really anybody should be concerned about a practitioner who's maybe had a couple of weekends of training and they're needling deeply into the body. There, there is that. But I'd really like to get your guys, and, and we'll start with Josh on this one. 
your guys' thoughts on the whole safety issue. Yeah, don't uh, don't puncture someone's lung. We'll just start with that. The safety issue for me is really from a legal perspective and from the perspective of the all the rancor and all of the conversations have been going back and forth between PTs and acupuncturists. To me, that's really the only vitally important aspect to this. A lot of the, the problems that have been occurring in terms of safety are often with people who've just had one or two weekends of training, and then they go and they needle some point on the thorax, they cause a pneumothorax, and just, that should just not be happening. So I, a series of classes that I took was with the, the myopain seminars people. I've done a few of their dry needling classes, one of which involved learning how to needle a lot of the points on the thorax, so needling the straightest anterior, needling a lot of the, the paraspinal muscles, the straightest posterior, inferior, and superior, all these points that are on the rib cage. And I was in this class with, I don't know, 30 or so physical therapists most of whom had never picked up a needle before. And they had this very specific way of teaching how to go about needling on the rib cage, right? So there's a way of you palpate for the ribs, you palpate for the spaces between the ribs, you kind of block the intercostal spaces with your fingers, you palpate on top of the rib, you locate the muscle fiber, and you make sure that you're actually only needling directly over bone. Even though I was in this room full of people with basically no experience, because of how it was taught and because of the sense of professionalism that PTs bring to their job for the most part, I actually felt entirely safe in that class. I actually felt more freaked out doing the technique on one of the guys because we were needling the straightest anterior and I'd never, I'd always avoided needling deep on the thorax for obvious reasons and all the horror stories we hear about in acupuncture school. When you say deep, are you going in perpendicular? You perpendicular going in perpendicular. If you're not far from like, you know, spleen 21 or gallbladder like 23 or 22. And I was needling my partner and I, I blocked the ribs. I could feel the rib uh, in between my fingers. I knew that my index and middle finger were kind of along the intercostal space. I used the other finger, the other hand to press. I could feel the rib. So I took an inch and a half needle and I start going down and I go in like an inch and I'm not hitting anything and I'm getting nervous. And so I asked the instructor, it's like, how far deep do you go before you you decide like I'm not where I think I am? Um, but I ended up going a little bit deeper and I hit I hit rib, I hit bone, and I got a twitch in the straightest anterior. But like I was more nervous for me doing it than I was having one of these PTs with almost no experience doing it to me, because I could feel that they had their fingers kind of in the right place, like as the patient. The problem is they get one weekend class, they practice each of those techniques on that muscle once, and then they then they go off and they practice it. And like some of the people in the level two class that I took, there were PTs in there who had taken the level one class like a year ago and hadn't really been practicing much since then. So the, the safety issue for me is really more about having requirements that the, if physical therapists, if they're going to be needling, especially on the thorax, there needs to be a lot more repetition, a lot more clinical supervision before they are just released to treat patients. That to me, that's the the main issue. Cause like their knowledge of anatomy and kind of what is actually under their hands when they're palpating from a like an anatomical perspective is is much, much better than most acupuncturists. I mean, I'm kind of ashamed to say that, but that's just 
how, you know, based on my experience and taking lots of orthopedic classes with other acupuncturists um, who've sometimes been in practice for 20 years, but still couldn't tell you like what's in between the skin and the bone with the needle that they're using. So, um, yeah, for me, that's the, the most important issue is that they need in a good class, they're actually taught really good technique, but it's a matter of they may be more confident than they should be about their ability to replicate that without lots of supervision and practice before they see patients. In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five-element and six-chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jingwell points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of chi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. One quick question here. So this was not a skinny person that you buried an inch and a half needle into. This was someone who had a little more meat on their bones, yeah? No. No. This was not this was not it's like you can't ever tell just by looking at someone necessarily unless they're like really really skinny. This was like an average dude. He was smaller than me. I was expecting to have to go in like a half a soon with the needle. And that's one of the reasons like I got nervous because he had like just a really really thick serratus anterior and a lot of tissue over it that uh, you wouldn't be able to tell by looking at them right and so that's i've had at that point lots of experience palpating people you know a decade or so of lots of manual therapy and lots of needling different parts of the body and that was just one that i didn't really have experience with and so like the experience that you have and the training that you have can be really much more specific than you realize you think well i'm good at doing a and b i must also i can just assume I know how to do C and D really well, but that's often not the case. Fernando, uh, what about you? What are your thoughts on this safety issue? Like Josh, I also did the myopain program. I did all three modules. And my experience was that they were very, very conscientious about safety, uh, particularly when needling on the thorax. We learned to block the ribs place the fingers in the intercostal spaces, and do not needle unless you felt bone, uh, the rib. And so I was really impressed, not only just with the needling on the thorax, also like, for example, some of the points on the, some of the trigger points in the distal part of the psoas in the yakus by the groin area so that you can palpate for the vein, the artery, and the nerve. Uh, before inserting your needle. So I, I thought that their, their safety teaching was very good. But I agree with, with Josh in that 
is the experience, the, the, the everyday work that's missing. The training, in my opinion, was tops. The knowledge of anatomy and physiology from the instructors was next to none. I, I learned so much. But I, I realized that some of the people that came to my, when I took the third module, had not been doing this uh, every day like we do. So it was really the lack of experience, of practical experience on a day-to-day. We have that because that's what we use for our work. We use a needle every day. While they're doing exercises and range of motion, and then they might throw in some dry needling to their patient. But what we do is concentrate using needles. So we have the experience, the everyday opportunity to use the needles. So I think that's where the problem comes in is that they don't have sufficient everyday use of the needle in their practice. And that's what I think is a problem. Okay. So the training's good, but you got to put it in motion more often so that you understand it in your own hands. And, and, and if you don't use it, you lose it. Right. At least, with, at least with Myopain. I don't know about the other organizations. The other thing I like about the Myopain program was that they really believe in one trigger point, no retention, no distal, no electrical stimulation, Pretty much a la travel type of thing. And I, and I've actually confronted Jan, the, the gentleman that is the president of Myopain on this subject. And he agrees. It's just one trigger point, no distal, no electrical. And, and, and I like that. Yep. Clean and simple. Yep. Old school. Okay. Brian, your thoughts on safety? I agree with both uh, Fernando and Josh. I'll give a kind of a, a different answer in terms of, uh, maybe not strict with PTs, but, you know, within the sports medicine acupuncture certification, uh, up until recently, we had uh, Simone Linder, who was one of the senior instructors with Anatrains, teaching us as a guest instructor. She's a structural integration practitioner. She's not, uh, doesn't do Chinese medicine. She doesn't do acupuncture. She was teaching a manual therapy class within there, within the program, you know, more myofascial releases as part of each module. And I'm really a brilliant instructor. It's, it's, a, it's an incredible system if people don't know anatomy trains. It's really an incredible system. But I feel very comfortable that I could teach, I'm not suggesting I would do this, but I feel very comfortable that I could teach Simone some very basic concepts with acupuncture and safety, and that she would just be an incredible acupuncturist without studying channel theory and Chinese medicine because she has an immense amount of knowledge and palpation and could come up with her own ideas that would probably parallel a lot of what, what uh, acupuncture and channel theory is saying. She would just think of it in a different way. So I have no doubt that someone like her or someone like Judith Delaney Walker or Tilda, or some of these educators in the massage field who are just experienced and brilliant practitioners could be great with a needle with, with very little training. Does that necessarily mean then that all massage therapists should be able to do work with an acupuncture needle? I don't, I don't think so. You know, just because there's exceptions and there's examples of people who, are, who could do fantastic work, it doesn't necessarily mean the whole profession does. Now, I don't know. Does that mean the PTs shouldn't be able to? I think that they don't have enough education for the reasons Josh says. You know, you, you can get a seminar series like Myopain, which I also took classes with, that I thought their practitioner were great. Their education was really sound. I think they were a very legit, you know, very high-end uh, organization. But the same thing that Josh was saying comes to comes to heart is that those people then go out and practice, and they don't have the ability necessarily to ask their instructors. They're doing it maybe the fourth time, and and they haven't had a lot of experience with needles to start with. So it's it's a risk. I don't know what that means. I don't know if that means that, you know, I would like to see if PTs are going to do that work, that they would have a lot more training to become uh, able to, to add it to their, their practice. More supervision. Yeah, Josh said that as well. More supervision, yes. Mm-hmm. Well, here's a fun question. 
if us acupuncturists are so damn good at acupuncture, what do we have to fear? I don't, I don't feel like we have anything to fear, but, but maybe that's, I think all of us would probably agree if we know our anatomy and we know what, I feel like I have stuff to learn from that field as I do. I have stuff to learn from visceral manipulation classes that I took that aren't using a needle, but they teach me something. My fascial classes, I think it, it just, it's just another avenue to understand the body more deeply. But a lot of acupuncturists, of course, are afraid of, of tri-needling. You know, I think we should, we should just build our profession and, and focus on becoming stronger and, be, and having a understanding and growing. And that should be the focus. Yeah, I also realize, you know, as an individual practitioner, I don't feel like I have anything to fear. Like, I know exactly, roughly, what it is, what my capabilities are. I don't have any fear that there's going to be a PT who's going to, you know, steal patients from me because they also do dry needling, although not in Washington State. But even I've had a bunch of acupuncturists kind of open up clinics like down the street from me. There are like three or four within a, uh, like a less than a mile radius of my house. And I'm like, great, fine. You know, no one, I know exactly what the type of work that I do. My patients know the type of work that I do. I have nothing to fear from anyone, but that's because I've been doing it long enough. I've developed my specialty. I, I have faith in the training that I've done and the effort that I've put into what it is that I do. It's like that's no longer an issue for me. Not that I'm necessarily, you know, better than the other people, but it's like I know what my my wheelhouse is. I know what I'm capable of doing. So, but as a profession, I think what we need to be afraid of is not developing practitioners who have that same level of comfort and confidence in their own abilities. I think just the fact that you're talking about or the fact that there's discussion about what we need, you know, what we're afraid of from the physical therapy side or from doctors or chiropractors or nurses also doing this. To me, that just reveals the lack of our own abilities and confidence. Fernando, your thoughts on this? As far as fearing, it's not so much that they're going to take patients away from us. I, I would like to think of us as acupuncturists, as a profession that stands equal, although we use different techniques, to those in the higher food chain. It's, it's not that we are better than a physical therapist or a chiropractor or, or a massage therapist or, or anything like that. So we have a very special, unique style of medicine that can stand on its own two feet. However, there are certain factors that we have to keep in mind, the economical factors. There are practitioners who are concerned about losing income to physical therapists, to chiropractors. But we have an actual medicine. We don't have just a modality. We have an actual medicine, a medicine that, of, of course, we know goes back to thousands of years. And I think we need to focus on that, that even though we may use a language that is appropriate for the times, that we capitalize on the fact that we are holistic practitioners. And even though you may come in with knee pain, back pain, uh, elbow pain, that we have a system of medicine that addresses the body as a whole. So I'm not really worried about the physical therapist who's doing dry needle on your uh, infraspinatus muscle or your quads and so on, because we have a more holistic approach. So uh, I'm not sure that we have anything to fear other than perhaps economical, but that's about it. 
I think the economical has a lot to do maybe with billing insurance. You know, if PTs have better ability to bill and acupuncturists don't, it could be that we do great work, but there's a lot of people that they'll go see the person that their insurance covers, but you know, we plenty of people that pay out of pocket without a doubt, but it, it, the pool becomes smaller if the billing and the referrals from MDs, because they're more in the medical system, if everything goes to PTs, just because of the infrastructure that's there and the dynamic that plays out with all of that is there, then that will hurt the profession as a whole for acupuncture. And that would be a shame because of all we do have to offer. And we have heard recently that there are some uh, CPT codes that are being implemented perhaps by the year 2020 for dry needling as well as for uh, trigger point acupuncture and so on. Mr. MD most likely is going to refer to the physical therapist. The orthopedic uh, surgeon is going to refer to the physical therapist and follow some kind of protocol. And then when that doesn't work, come back to him again, and then maybe we'll talk surgery. I think that needs to be changed so that at some point, the referral is to the acupuncturist, orthopedic acupuncturist. And and the, the public perception of what we are doing in, in orthopedics is what we need to influence the most. That's a fantastic point there, Fernando, that there's a system that's out there. Is there a way that we, with our medicine and our experience, can interface with it? It sounds like a, a fantastic and worthwhile challenge to take up because lots of places do have insurance that covers acupuncture. Missouri is not one of them, but but many places do. And of course, the system takes care of the system. So is there a way for those who are interested and have the skill to be able to interface with the system that way? That, that sounds like some good work for some folks to get, get cracking on. Right. Well, gentlemen, this has been wonderful. And I, and we could actually go a lot longer, but I, I try to keep these to roughly an hour because I like to respect the listener's time as well. Before we sign off, i just like to hear from each one of you just a, a short takeaway or a short bit of advice that you could give to our listeners in terms of uh, either learning to work this way or learning to somehow keep our heads above water and keep our wits about us as we chew on this at times tumultuous issue? I think that what's important for us as orthopedic acupuncturists is to continue to expand our horizons, our, our knowledge on anatomy, physiology, uh, kinesiology, uh, and, and those, those relevant uh, fields that will make us better practitioners. And fortunately, there are programs out there, such as Brian and Matt Gallison, that are teaching this kind of work to our profession. And the folks at Chinese Medicine that works, they're offering the, this type of training as well. And, and I think that we should just continue studying, learning, and keep going forward. Yeah, I definitely agree with uh, Fernando. We, we have a lot of resources within the profession. And because of this challenge that's come up, I think it's redirected uh, the profession, at least a portion of the profession, to really take on some information and, and integrate new information. And I think in some respects, this this is going to be very good for the profession. Economically, there might be it, and that's an unfortunate, that's a whole other topic. But I think that the aspect that it's it's changed a little bit of the focus, keeping our roots, keeping our understanding, keeping our depth, but maybe adding a little bit of understanding and definitely adding more anatomical understanding to our practice, I think, had a lot, uh, lot to, to offer. I would add one other thing, though, is that obviously this discussion is really relevant for orthopedic acupuncturists. But I think understanding muscle dysfunction 
trigger points, posture, all of that is really a big, big component of internal medicine also in terms of how acupuncture can affect breathing and can affect the ability to swallow properly and affect how fluids move through the body. Just because the, the musculature has such a role in terms of how it's uh, how it influences all of those things, how it can take pressure off and allow for, for nerve conduction to happen more effectively and allow for fluids to move more efficiently. So really, this is broader, in my opinion, than just orthopedic acupuncture. The only other thing I would add is the importance of, of really falling in love with muscles and with really falling in love with the study of the body and being excited about it for a few reasons. First, because it makes it easier to actually study and learn when you're really obsessed and fascinated and you, you see a patient and they present with something you don't understand and so you can't wait to kind of run to your anatomy textbook or to a copy of Travel or go online and kind of look something up. But also what happens, I've found both with students, like teaching students in school and also seeing patients is the enthusiasm that you have towards it is really contagious. And with students, they then pick up from you a love of the material and a love of learning because part of the enthusiasm is the enthusiasm of always learning new material and putting yourself in positions where you don't know the answer and being uncomfortable and getting comfortable in that position because you're going to have to be in that position all the time with patients in the clinic. And then with patients, when they see that enthusiasm, it's like even if you're not doing a very good job of helping them the first couple of times you see them, they get the feeling that you really want to know what's going on with them and that you were really interested in what's going on with them and that you're interested in trying to figure it out with them, whereas they, maybe they've seen other practitioners, whether it's a doctor or a PT, another acupuncturist or a massage therapist, who, and I've, I've heard this a num numerous times in relation to all sorts of different types of practitioners, like, yeah, they just seem to kind of want to do what they already knew how to do and they didn't, like, they weren't listening to me or they didn't really seem to care that they weren't, like, changing anything in my body. So having that sense of enthusiasm and that love and that passion, it drives a lot of really positive change, both in patients and in yourself and in, in students if you're teaching. Well, gentlemen, I thank you so much for your time today. This is a discussion that I've been wanting to have. It's one of those discussions I've been a little nervous about having. It's a hot topic. The perspective that you guys bring to this, the look at language, the look at learning, the look at that we have a medicine, not just a modality, and, and how we can look at this dry needling or the trigger point work as a piece of something that helps to inform us with the work we do. It's, it's been really helpful for me. I hope those of you that have been listening today that you found it helpful as well. And I suspect that this is a conversation that we'll be continuing in the future. Gentlemen, thank you for doing this. It's been an honor. Well, thank you. Yes, thank you. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today.
Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community. Mm-hmm.